Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Welcome to episode four of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going to look at Jeanette Winterson's third novel from 1989. Not the third novel, she wrote in 1989, but anyways, it's called Sexing the Cherry, which given Winterson's reputation, does not refer to what you think it would. Unless, of course, you thought it referred to determining the gender of a hybrid cherry tree. In which case, congratulations, you've got it. And now, on with the story. So let me start by explaining a bit about what I just said right now about Winterson's reputation. Her character, her persona, at least for me, was set in her first novel, one of the best I've read in the last few years. The autobiographical Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. What was so great about Oranges? Well, it was bold. I mean, it was really bold. Here was the story of a young girl, an adopted young girl, growing up in a poor neighborhood, being lorded over, being dominated, really, by her evangelical mother, a woman whose character is beautifully, succinctly captured in the first lines of the book. Like most people, I lived for a long time with my mother and father. My father liked to watch the wrestling. My mother liked to wrestle. It didn't matter what. She was in the white corner, and that was that. She hung out the largest sheets on the windiest days, She wanted the Mormons to knock on the door. At election time in a labor mill town, she put a picture of the conservative candidate in the window. She had never heard of mixed feelings. There were friends, and there were enemies. At first, Jeanette was her mother's best friend, her most loyal companion. Very quickly, though, she would become her mother's worst enemy. Winterson drops out of the evangelical movement that was so dear to both women, the obsession, really, of the mother's life. And more importantly, or fatefully, Winterson falls in love with a girl. I should say at this point that I may be remiss in assuming that the main character is actually Jeanette Winterson. Winterson has discussed how when a man uses his name in a work of fiction, it's metafiction, but when a woman uses her name, it's just called autobiography. Having said that, though, Winterson did recently release a non-fiction account that seems to cover much of the relationship with her mother that is described in Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. That nonfiction account is called Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal, which pretty much says it all. In any case, what I'm trying in a roundabout way to say is that her first novel had all the force of being autobiographical. It was direct, the characters were fully and brilliantly formed, full of life, and and it was raw. It was painful to read about a young girl being more or less disowned by her mother. It was painful reading about how a mother could turn a child into a stranger overnight. In fact, I'm crying just thinking about it. And by crying, I of course mean smiling, because when you are reading, there are only tears of joy, no matter what people say, no matter what you say to yourself. I mean, Angel's Ashes was a bestseller, right? And even though I didn't read it, I don't recall it being about one endless day spent at the county fair with all your favorite people, although I could be wrong. Anyways, add to the fact that Winterson was not much older than her character when she wrote the book. I believe she was 26 when it was published. 
meaning she must have started working on it in her early 20s. And you just have to be extra damn impressed with her strong writing. I mean, damn. Oranges are not the only fruit, being Winterson's first novel, set me off on a mission. I decided I was going to read her novels in chronological order. After that, then, was The Passion. And the less said about The Passion, the better, which means this won't be falling under the category of the better. The Passion was a departure from the trajectory set by Oranges are not the only fruit. Where Oranges was set in a mill town in late 20th century Britain, The Passion was a story, by and large, of a chicken cook in Napoleon's army, which would make it the early 18th century in France. Where Oranges is full of the grit of life and the writing is incredibly muscular and gives a sort of poetic vitality to the mundane, the sheets hanging off the line, the political posters hiding behind the grimy windows. The Passion, in contrast, is set in a poetic world, the conquests of Napoleon and, in a parallel plot, the canals of Venice, because of course, Venice is all canal. In The Passion, there is little grit of the kind you feel in your teeth or in the teeth of your brain, and the poetry is practically squashing up against you everywhere you go. As a reader, you don't find it. It is always finding you. In fact, it's hounding you. It's a short book, but oppressive in its relentless way. Suffocating is the word I'd use for it. And having set up this dichotomy, this fork, between her first two novels, I didn't know where Winterson would end up with novel number three, Sexing the Cherry. It did not, however, take me long to find out. Before the first page of the novel, there are two unattributed epigrams. The Hopi, an Indian tribe, have a language as sophisticated as ours, but no tenses for past, present, and future. The division does not exist. What does this say about time? And... Matter, which you are holding in your hands and which makes up your body, is now known to be mostly empty space. Empty space and points of light. What does this say about the reality of the world? And while I'm trying to keep an open mind, I am thinking, shit. Actually, I'm thinking, an essay abstract, rules to follow, a thesis statement, two thesis statements, But you can't let a little drizzle ruin what could end up being a sunny day. Well, actually, I know a lot of people who do exactly that, and I'm one of those people. But that would have been bad. Open mind, burning books. Gotta keep an open mind. So, as with the passion, there are two main characters in Sexing the Cherry, and they alternate as storytellers. There is the suggestively named Jordan, a boy who comes from the river, Thames, returns to the river, Thames, and ends up traveling waterways all over the world. He is the adopted son of the character called only by the name Dog Mother, a gargantuan type, massive, filthy, by far the more compelling character and storyteller of the two, a real riverbank dweller. This is how she introduces herself. How hideous am I? My nose is flat, my eyebrows are heavy, I have only a few teeth, and those are a poor show, being black and broken. I had smallpox when I was a girl, and the caves in my face are home enough for fleas. As for my size, I know only that before Jordan was found, a traveling circus came through Cheapside, and in that circus was an elephant. We were all pleased to see the elephant, a huge beast with a wandering nose. Its trick was to sit itself in a seat like any well-bred gentleman and wear an eyeglass. 
There was a seat on its opposite side, and a guessing game was to offer up a certain number of persons to climb onto the other seat, topsy-turvy as best they could, and outweigh Samson, as the elephant was named. No one had succeeded, though the prize was about a veil. And incidentally, she does get on that scale, and she sends the elephant flying. So, the dog mother and Jordan are living in mid-17th century England, which is to say, England in the midst of the Civil War. On the one side, there are the Cavaliers, those loyal to King Charles. On the other, there are the Roundheads, the dread Puritans, led by Oliver Cromwell. In a sense, the war, although it determines some of the plot's direction, causing Jordan and the dog mother to move here and there, takes up too little of the story. That's especially true of Winterson's description of the joy killing, which is actually the joy murdering or joy neck wringing that is undertaken by the Puritans. I mean, they didn't get their name as a form of approximation. Here's the dog mother nicely setting up the entire situation. As far as I know it, and I have only a little learning, the king had been forced to call a parliament to grant him money for his war against the kilted beasts and their savage ways. Savage to the core, and the poor king trying only to make them use a proper prayer book. They wouldn't have his prayer book, and in a most unchristian manner threatened his throne. The king, turning to his own people, found himself with a parliament full of Puritans who wouldn't grant him money until he had granted them reform. Not content with the Church of England that good King Henry had bequeathed to us all, they wanted what they called a Church of God. They said that the king was a wanton spendthrift, that the bishops were corrupt, that our Book of Common Prayer was full of popish ways, that the queen herself, being French, was bound to be full of popish ways. Oh, they hated everything that was grand and fine and full of life, and they went about in their flat gray suits with their flat gray faces poking out the top. The only thing fancy about them was their handkerchiefs, which they liked to be trimmed with lace and kept as white as they reckoned their souls to be. I've seen Puritans going past a theater where all was merriment and pleasure and holding their starch linen to their noses for fear they might smell pleasure and be infected by it. The frequently occurring descriptions of the pinched nose, the literally and metaphorically pinched nose, legions of Puritans, is just ill. It's an illness. And it's one of the best things about the book. It speaks not just about morality gone mad, as the English might put it, it also speaks about the inherent lunacy of any regime of absolutes, in this case, absolute moral judgment. It makes a mockery of self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is one of those things that needs always to be mocked, heavily mocked, 24-7 mocked. Winterson, being raised in the realm of the utmost self-righteous, and quickly finding herself relegated to the realm of the judged by the self-righteous, is the ideal person to point out its folly, and it's one of the strengths of the book. As for what occurs in the book, well, that's not really one of the strengths. The battles of the Civil War caused Jordan and the dog mother to move from their Thames-side abode to the Royal Gardens, and eventually Jordan takes flight. Not so much from war as for reasons to do with destiny, which in this case means for no real discernible reason at all, at least within the plot. His name is Jordan, he travels. While on his travels, though, Jordan does, mercifully, make a few interesting acquaintances. Chief among them are the Twelve Dancing Princesses. Here, the reader gets a glimpse of what Winterson could do within the bounds of the quasi-fairy tale world she has set up. The Twelve Dancing Princesses are confined to a tower, each having, in one way or another, escaped their husbands and, more broadly, escaped the fairy tale world that has, to this point, confined them. 
Each princess tells her story to Jordan, and in the story we get inversions and subversions and perversions of the fairy tale world. I have a couple here, and we'll start with this one. He called me Jess because that is the name of the hood which restrains the falcon. I was his falcon. I hung on his arm and fed at his hand. He said my nose was sharp and cruel and that my eyes had madness in them. He said I would tear him to pieces if he dealt softly with me. At night, if he was away, he had me chained to our bed. It was a long chain, long enough for me to use the chamber pot or stand at the window and wait for the late owls. I love to hear the owls. I love to see the sudden glide of wings spread out for prey and then the dip in the noise like a lover in pain. He used the chain when we went riding together. I had a horse as strong as his, and he'd whip the horse from behind and send it charging through the trees, and he'd follow, half a head behind, pulling on the chain and asking me how I liked my ride. His game was to have me sit astride him when we made love and hold me tight in the small of my back. He said he had to have me above him in case I'd picked his eyes out in the faltering candlelight. I was none of these things, but I became them. At night, in June, I think, I flew off his wrist and tore his liver from his body and bit my chain in pieces and left him on the bed with his eyes open. He looked surprised. I don't know why. As your lover describes you, so you are. And here's another story, slightly longer, from the following dancing princess. When my husband had an affair with someone else, I watched his eyes glaze over when we ate dinner together and I heard him singing to himself without me, and when he tended the garden, it was not for me. He was courteous and polite, he enjoyed being at home, but in the fantasy of his home, I was not the one who sat opposite him and laughed at his jokes. He didn't want to change anything. He liked his life. The only thing he wanted to change was me. It would have been better if he had hated me, or if he had abused me, or if he had packed his new suitcases and left. As it was, he continued to put his arm around me and talk about building a new wall to replace the rotten fence that divided our garden from his vegetable patch. I knew he would never leave our house. He had worked for it. Day by day, I felt myself disappearing. For my husband, I was no longer a reality. I was one of those things around him. I was the fence which needed to be replaced. I watched myself in the mirror and saw that I was no longer vivid and exciting. I was worn and gray like an old sweater you can't throw out but won't put on. He admitted he was in love with her, but he said he loved me. Translated, that means, I want everything. Translated, that means, I don't want to hurt you yet. Translated, that means, I don't know what you do. Translated, that means, I don't know what to do, give me time. Why, why should I give you time? What are you giving me? I am in a cell waiting to be called for execution. I loved him and I was in love with him. I didn't use language to make a war zone of my heart. You're so simple and good, he said, brushing the hair from my face. He meant, your emotions are not complex like mine. My dilemma is poetic. But there was no dilemma. He no longer wanted me, but he wanted our life. Eventually, when he had been away with her for a few days and returned restless and conciliatory, I decided not to wait in my cell any longer. I went to where he was sleeping, in another room, and I asked him to leave. Very patiently, he asked me to remember that the house was his home, that he couldn't be expected to make himself homeless because he was in love. Medea, I said, and Romeo and Juliet, and Cressida, and Ruth in the Bible. He asked me to shut up. He wasn't a hero. Then why should I be a heroine? He plucked at the blanket. I considered my choices. I could stay and be unhappy and humiliated. I could leave and be unhappy and dignified. I could beg him to touch me again. I could live in hope and die of bitterness. I took some things and left. It wasn't easy. It was my home, too. 
I hear he's replaced the back fence. Each of the princess's stories packs a similar kind of punch in a paragraph or two. And in these short, elusive, earthy paragraphs, we have the best of Winterson, the writer, who sees the strangeness and, from a certain point of view, the inappropriateness of stories we use to comfort ourselves. And for that, I have to say, sick job, Jeanette. Just sick. In terms of concise and cogent punches to the gut, there is another aspect of the book that, like the story of the Twelve Dancing Princesses, only makes small holes in the wall, but is effective nonetheless. And that is when, in the midst of this laborious tale set in 1649, the present day suddenly intrudes. So here's the scene. They are catcalling the girl as she comes out of school. She hates them. She wants to kill them. They tell her she smells, that she's too fat, too tall. She walks home along the riverbank to a council flat in Upper Thames Street. The traffic deafens her. She climbs up the steps at Waterloo Bridge to look at St. Paul's glinting in the evening. She can't see St. Paul's. All she can see are rows of wooden stakes and uncertain craft bobbing along the water. She can't hear the traffic anymore. The roar of dogs is deafening. Coming to herself, she kicks the bunch of hounds and drags her blanket shawl closer to her. For a moment she felt dizzy, lost her balance. But no, she's home as always. She can see her hut. She laughs and the wind blows through the gaps in her teeth. Jordan will be waiting for her. She doesn't have to see him to know he's there. And although there isn't any clue that I could see, any explicit clue in the paragraph, I read this scene as a trip through the looking glass. I had the sense in this paragraph that I had gotten a brief glimpse of the actual dog mother. That is to say that the entire story to the point, and after that point, was an elaborate fantasy made up by the mind of this young girl, too fat and too tall, an outcast in her community. For a second, all of sexing the cherry was actually this young girl's way of coping with the hostility of her environment. It's no surprise that this sense of exciting potential, the idea that a small passage could pivot an entire book, should be the product of Winterson working in the present tense, the period in which her writing was at its best in Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. For this brief moment, the entire story seems to take on an immediacy and a relevance that is just not there in the rest of the book. Unfortunately, though, it's an island, an island on its own, and the rest of the story just looks at it from shore. The problem with sexing the cherry, at least in my view, is that the first two epigrams, which prove to be the thesis statements of the book, are not really augmented by the many pages that follow them. Certainly, the two ideas that were the motor of this book, these two theses, are interesting ideas. They're beautiful ideas, great reimaginations from our perspective of time and space and matter. But the book's many internal divisions and meanderings don't make any more of those original ideas than they made of themselves. And if that's the case, and it was for me, then what was I reading all those following pages for? Sexing the Cherry did, by the end, have the feel of an essay. One that's a solid B-plus for its strong ideas not entirely pulled off. I've made the point, or at least I've tried to make the point, a couple of times already, but as with the work of the director Steve McQueen, I find that Winterson works best in the present. She's a more effective, I'll just say it, a way more exciting storyteller. When she goes to the past, there's something of a glass box that encases her work. Now, there are writers who are fluid when writing about the past. I'm thinking of Peter Carey's amazing novel, Jack Maggs, 
And there are writers who, whether by feeling too much responsibility or being overpowered by what they think the past should sound or feel like, there's that word should again, are beaten up by it. I'm looking at, well, there are too many to name, really. Winterson isn't entirely beaten by her attempt at forging her own kind of historical fiction, but she's not yet carved the same path through the past that she so effortlessly carves through the present. At least, not yet. For one, the time about which she writes, while relevant to the plot and the ideas she's trying to convey, doesn't seem necessary. It was a mid-17th century England, but it could just as easily have been post-Reformation Europe or the time of the Salem witch trials and Cotton Mather. It didn't feel necessary to go to this time, this place. She can talk about self-righteousness, about puritanism, about divisions, about rupture. She can talk about all those things by visiting another time. And perhaps this is why the book is constantly fleeing from that time and place in one way or another. Because it didn't feel necessary, I felt I was, as a reader, being experimented on. And that's a bad feeling. A really bad feeling. Experimental fiction, whether or not it acknowledges itself as such, never needs to turn its readers into lab rats. All in all, then, despite its occasional sparks, this novel has really challenged my will to work my way in order through Winterson's oeuvre. If her next book, Written on the Body, is as uneven as this one and The Passion, I may skip around, or just go straight to Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal, which, as a tandem partner to The Amazing Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, is really where I want to be anyway. And so that's where I'm going to stop. Jeanette, if you're listening, please don't be mad at me. Or better yet, if you are mad, please let me know, along with all other sentiments, via Twitter at burningbookspod, or through email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you again to the amazing Hakan Ozgan for the music. This shit. And as always, go Jays. financial editor of the Daily Mail newspaper, and I'm doing a, a, se- a segment here for Litopia on my new book, Britain for Sale, which has just been published by Random House Business. Mm-hmm.